Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Canada and the United States have agreed to share more information about smuggling of guns and drugs across their shared border. Michael Kempa, Associate Professor of Criminology at the University of Ottawa, will talk to us about that. How can Canada create more rental housing? We've got a couple of ideas that we're going to discuss. And what was the Pearson Airport gold heist all about? And was it an inside job? Get into that great uh, investigative reporting by Adrian Humphreys, and he'll join us to talk about that. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. These amendments will ensure that any future government will have a very, very difficult time making assault-style firearms legal again. That's a... Uh, Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino uh, speaking uh, to uh, the media yesterday. The, the Liberals, as you probably are aware, have uh, taken another run at, uh, at uh, assault on firearms uh, with another piece of legislation. They've, they've had to modify a number of different things over the last little while, hoping to make this thing acceptable to, uh, to the majority of members of Parliament, and this is one of them. Uh, the other element to this, though, of course, is, uh, is what's coming across the border, uh, and, uh, and that's a great concern. So what we're going to look at here is uh, is a new deal, and, and this is something that uh, they've been cooking for quite some time now. Uh, Canada and the U.S. Uh, have vowed now to share more data in the fight against cross-border smuggling, and opioids have included in that as well. And uh, this was a meeting of the minds, of course, of Canadian and U.S. officials earlier this week. Uh, joining us to talk about this is uh, Michael Kempa, Michael Associate Professor of Criminology at the University of Ottawa. Michael, always a pleasure. Thanks for the time today. Thank you, Bill. Uh, we've always, I think, almost bragged about the fact, Michael, that uh, you know the the border between Canada and the U.S. is the longest undefended border in the world. Uh, now, I think a lot of law enforcement officials are starting to understand that that's a problem, not just a bragging point. Well, it's a, it's a gigantic challenge, in particular because the means of smuggling items—firearms, narcotics, and people—is far more sophisticated than it ever was. You know, ranging everything from drone technology to uh, very sophisticated uh, ways of concealing things inside uh, moving vehicles, far so more so than in the past. And and successfully, I guess is 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 an adjective we could use here because I mean, when we talk to law enforcement officials, invariably they say that that's the larger problem here. It's it's the illegal import of these weapons. It's the it's not as if we're manufacturing and selling them to people here. That does happen, of course, but there are some pretty stringent stringent checks in place. Uh, but the, the feeling now, Michael, seems to be that look at if you want a gun, you can get a gun from somebody if, as long as you have that that connection. Well, you certainly can. And one of the difficulties that um, people often overlook is the fact that ghost guns are increasingly a huge problem. Ghost guns, there's a whole underground market for the production of firearms outside of the formal gun manufacturers. We're talking about things these days like 3D printers and other items that where, where pieces of guns can be assembled completely off the grid and mailed out as kits essentially to anybody who who wants one these things are very difficult to trace um it involves policing a lot of activity on the internet and going down the kind of technological rabbit holes to figure out uh, where you see patterns of people ordering certain goods that are used to produce these things and ultimately identifying the suppliers so this is very scary and very complicated and adds that layer to the black market of uh, or the illicit market of guns in North America, especially. 
So to follow up on that, though, Michael, if law enforcement officials want to follow that, and, and, and as you say, track, and it means internet exploration and so many other things, it's pretty labor-intensive. Do, do we have the resources to, to let them do that? Well, in a word, no, we don't, um, because we, we have made a number of announcements very much along these lines from what we heard this last week from uh, Minister Mendicino uh, and his U.S. counterparts in the Canada-United States Cross-Border Crime Forum. It's nice to make announcements and to talk about collaboration and so forth, but we do need the personnel power in our organizations that are charged with doing this type of investigation and monitoring. So just for example, policing the border obviously uh, is very much, at least at the crossing points, the responsibility of the Canadian Border Services Agency. It's uh, population of workers has grown in recent years, but when you break down the stats, it's mostly middle and upper level management. And this is something that their union has hammered on time again, that they need more agents on the ground to do this difficult work of physically intercepting people at the border, inspecting them, and further carrying out some of their newer responsibilities in following proactively information trails to disrupt the flow of goods that elicit goods that are crossing the border. So it's not enough to just give them the responsibilities and signal a commitment to these agencies. You've got to populate the agencies with the personnel power. And in some place, I guess there have to be some decisions made and some policies made. The, the form to, to which, of course, you're referring uh, had uh, Minister Mandicino, David Lametti, who's the Justice Minister, uh, and their American counterparts, Homeland Security uh, uh, Secretary Mayorkas and uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland, you know, uh, all participating in this. But but how do you filter the the, the you know the the good efforts and and the the you know the good intents of these gentlemen uh, down to the rank and file? Uh, because one of the concerns that we always hear about with law enforcement, and heaven knows you and I talked about it extensively when the investigation into the Ottawa insurrection was, uh, almost a year ago. Uh, information sharing is a problem with these these organizations. You're not wrong about that. The information sharing is difficult enough within uh, nation states. So within Canada itself, CSIS, the RCMP, CBSA, and uh, the CSC, Canadian Security Establishment, which more or less is more responsible for the internet dimension of national security issues, are already well known to struggle with sharing information and having institutional jealousies um, and conceits where they like to keep some of the best stuff for themselves and may not trust the other players in the network um, to do good things with the information or undermine their own efforts. So just for example, the uh, CSIS is often reluctant to share information with the RCMP because they don't want criminal investigations that the RCMP might fumble undermine their intelligence efforts, the level of CSIS. So if it's hard enough to coordinate information across our own security agencies, and these problems are replicated in the United States between their various agencies, Homeland Security, DEA, FBI, so forth and so on, you can imagine how hard it will be for all of these players to play nicely across the border. Is is it, it? It's not impossible because we do have some evidences of of, of cooperative work that's gone on here. And and uh, but mind you, when I talk to law enforcement agencies, a lot of the time, Michael, will just say, "Well, we're we're scratching the surface here." Uh, 
how do we make this coordinated effort? I mean, you know, the, uh, it's it's one thing for the for the you know, Garland, Merrick Garlands, and and the David Lametti's to say, yeah, this is what we're going to do, uh, but it's it's going to have to be coordinated really at the grassroots level, isn't it, to get that sense of cooperation and and to share that information? Well, it absolutely will, and part of that is about getting. Uh, a very clear resourced mandate for each player in the network. So right now we're feeling around a little bit for what exactly the role of Canadian Border Services Agency is going to be. It's more than just people at the border asking to see your passport. We learned that in COVID-19 and the pandemic, for example, CBSA officers had all kinds of responsibility for following up on ensuring that people were respecting the quarantine measures when they came back into the country, and further sending out officers to investigate where people may have been violating those rules, which sort of starts shifting the TBSA into having some investigative and police enforcement powers, which may be a good thing, providing that we regulate CBSA in a way that we regulate police. So what I'm saying there is, all right, get clear on the mandate of CBSA and then resource it. And then similarly with the RCMP and that whole kettle uh, of problems there with are we are we going to have them focus on local policing? What about their federal role? Do they have to divert too many of their federal officers to local policing contracted issues? Does that leave the federal issues starved as it seems to have? We get into the foreign interference file and wonder why the RCMP hasn't done very much. Have they actually got the personnel to do much about it? I don't think so. So this is about if you're if and I think it helps when we partner up with the United States because we're almost embarrassed to have to open up our folders to the US and have them see how poorly we've defined the objectives of each of our players. In a way it forces us almost like when the teacher is going to check the homework you kind of get it together um in time for that meeting with the teacher or the professor supervisor. It's a little bit similar when we partner up with our much larger and in a sense more serious global security partner, the United States of America. As we say, uh, you know, some wonderful words here from all the uh, individuals involved in the, in the, the forum here, but uh, it's going to be fascinating to see the action plan. And, and there were pretty scant details about that, wasn't there? Weren't there? Very scant on the details, and that's where I think the unions or the federations for each of these uh, players in the network, the RCMP's federation, CBSA union, and so forth, they can now start being proactive and saying, we want to take on these parts of what were announced, give us the resources to do that. Personally, I think one of the most interesting agencies to watch over the next decade is going to be CBSA. Uh, because they are being quite activist in wanting to take on more roles and grow their membership. Uh, any place that's going through a transition where it doesn't necessarily have a long history of huge controversies, uh, for young people looking for employment, I often encourage my students in that direction. I'm saying you're getting in on the ground floor of something that's being defined. And if you're paying attention, there will be a lot of opportunity for you in that organization. Yeah, I, I agree totally, and and I think that may well be the first part of uh, of their plan and where the focus should be. Uh, Michael, always great to get your perspective on this. Thank you so much for the time today. Thanks for including me, Bill. Take care. Michael Kempa uh, from, uh, of course, the University of Ottawa on, Ottawa on their criminology report uh, that is coming out these days, and uh, and we'll track that story because it's very, very important. Uh, they, they touched on a number of things. It's, it's illegal guns, it's, it's narcotics, uh, and human trafficking, too. It's all included, and uh, there have to be. Uh, 
stronger guidelines and incentives, I guess, for law enforcement to work cooperatively there. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's continue uh, the theme, I guess, that we've had here, which is housing and affordability, because so many people are concerned about that. And and as we mentioned in the last segment, uh, it's at the point right now where governments are, are having to spend a lot more time than they probably wanted to uh, facing this housing affordability crisis uh, because of what, everything they've tried so far just hasn't seemed to have, have worked. It's just not that effective. And to that point, the Ontario NDP is calling on the uh, government now to take real action on the province's housing affordability crisis. NDP housing critic uh, Jessica Bell is introducing a motion to Queen's Park that would bring all homes under rent control, including those built after 2018. Here's what she had to say. Every month, households are worried and stressed that they will not be able to afford the rent. Children are going hungry. Multiple families are living in overcrowded apartments because they can't afford to live on their own. And it's all a domino effect. I mean, you know, if, if people that are renting and want to get into the, the market and own, uh, they can't because there aren't enough product. There's not enough housing there. So they stay where they are. And that means there aren't enough rental properties available. It's a, it's a vicious cycle that's going on. Our next guest uh, can shed some light on a, a possible solution to this that might uh, at least alleviate some of the pressure anyway. Uh, he is uh, Mike Moffat, who is the senior director at the Smart Prosperity Institute and assistant professor with the Ivy Business School at Western University. Uh, professor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Great to have you back on the show. Well, thank you for having me. I, I was fascinated by the piece that you wrote here, Mike, because basically what you're suggesting here is that uh, maybe part of the solution here is for governments to actually, uh, it's like a retro thing, go back in time and do something they were doing before, which seemed to be a pretty effective tool. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I feel that we, we spend a lot of time talking about what the municipal role is in housing and the provincial role. And we, we've kind of, as uh, policy analysts, have let the federal government uh, off the hook. But the federal government has a lot of policy tools, including the tax system. So what Ken Bosenkul, my co-author, and I suggest is that we can look to past uh, tax policies to get some ideas of how to create more affordable rental housing. Back in the 1960s and 1970s, up until about 1972, the federal government had uh, incentives in place for the private sector to create a lot more rental housing. They were basically favorable tax treatment, allowing them to deduct expenses faster, that kind of thing. So Ken and I suggest that we should try and think through what a 2023 version of this uh, might look like. But we know it worked in the past. The government uses similar tools to accelerate investment in clean energy and, and, and other things that we deal, deem important as society. So this is something that's worked in the past. It's worked in other sectors. So we think the federal government should consider it. Uh, and your point's well taken. I mean, there was a time, as you say, where the federal government did play a key role in this. And uh, just I got out of the business. I, I, you know, obviously there were hard economic times and and that was one of the uh, the collateral victims, I guess, of this whole situation. They just did. Uh, this is your job, guys. And they left it pretty much up to the to province who kind of left it up to the municipalities. Uh, and, and as you and I have talked about in the past, that's the worst thing to do because, I mean, you know, that the cities don't have the ability to pay for this sort of stuff. It has to be really all three levels of government working cooperatively, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. That, uh, you know, I like to say the housing's a chain and it only works as well as its weakest link. So I, I think it's fantastic that we're looking at what, what the municipal government and uh, the provincial government can do. But the federal government 
has a big role to play. And I think in part, you know, the federal government's been spending a lot of money on, on housing. Uh, we just question how much bang for the buck that they're they're getting that uh, if instead of, you know, spending so much on, on social housing, and we think a lot of that's important, what if we took a little bit of that money and incentivized the private sector uh, to build more? I think we'd get a lot more bang for the buck that way. So it's not just a matter of, you know, how much they're spending. And governments always like to tell you how much they're spending. We're saying, no, we should take more of an outcomes-focused uh, approach and going, okay, if we've got uh, if we've got a billion dollars to spend on this, what's going to get the be- best for- bang for the buck? And, you know, history seems to suggest that where you get the most bang for the buck is incentivizing the private sector to build. Well, exactly. And, and you know, both the province here in Ontario and, of course, the feds uh, have made promises in the federal budget. Uh, Minister Freeland talked about this. Uh, Doug Ford uh, has mentioned many times, uh, you know, they're going to build 1.5 million homes. Uh, well, <laughs> Doug Ford's not going to get the toolkit out and build them. It's really the private sector that, that's going to be the, the catalyst for this. But they've got to be incentivized. And right now, I, 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 I'm not sure that there is that incentive. But the plan that you and, and Ken wrote about here, uh, as you say, reaching back in time, uh, seemed to offer that incentive because, as you say, there were some some breaks, some tax breaks, uh, as long as as though those people reinvested back into the housing market again, uh, and it seemed to work. And and you look at the number of housing starts that that were around back then, as opposed to where it is now. And uh, what, what we should be able to learn from the past here, shouldn't we? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So you know, we were building more homes uh, six in the '60s and '70s, and we when we say homes, that's everything from single detached homes to uh, you know high rise apartment units. You know, we were building more homes back then, despite the fact that our population was uh, significantly smaller. So I think we should look at the these tools. And you know, the irony here is that Budget 2023 used a lot of these uh, tools again to to look at things like clean manufacturing, uh, uh, building carbon capture and storage in the Alberta oil sands. Uh, you know, to invest in clean hydrogen. You know, a lot of these same tools were used to attract uh, Volkswagen to St. Thomas. So our view is, you know, this clearly works. Uh, It's worked in the past in housing. The government sees it as a good approach to get uh, drive investment in in the EV sector. Why don't we get more investment in the housing sector so we can get a lot closer to that uh, 1.5 million target? Well, and there's a stat here that you guys included in, in the essay here that I think just really underscores that. Uh, in 1972, just in that year, 1972, more than 35,000 new rental units began construction here in Ontario. There were not that many rental units starting in the entire 1990s, which which really begs the question, Mike, what were they doing right then that they've stopped doing? And and I think you've answered it with this paper. Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's been basically the, the tax treatment of housing, but particularly rental housing, has gotten a whole lot worse uh, since the 1970s. So all of these tax incentives, uh, these investment tax credits, uh, these accelerated capital cost allowance, which just basically talks about how much uh, a building owner can depreciate for tax purposes uh, that building. All of those things have uh, basically been eliminated. And in the last 30 to 40 years, we've seen increases in uh, development charges, uh, GST on building materials, which is something that the Ford government talks about. So we've we've gone from basically a tax system that subsidizes new housing because uh, we re- recognize it's it's an important thing to have to one that's just you know taxing the heck out of it with you know land value transfer taxes and that kind of thing. So what Ken and I are basically arguing is that I think we need to tilt the playing field a little bit. We all say that we want more housing. 
Well, the, the, the best way to get more of something is to, to make it cheaper. And one of the easiest ways to make it cheaper is to lower the taxes on it. Well, and, and to that point, uh, because I know there's always going to be some pushback from some circles that say, well, you, you just you, you throw these things out there. These guys are just going to make more money and put it in their pockets, and that's going to be it. But the, the, the codicil here is that they have to reinvest it. In other words, build more. And, and, and as a matter of fact, it's gonna, the more they build, I guess, the, the, the more they're going to save. I mean, it's an interesting mathematical formula uh, that they used back then, but it really seemed to work. And, and uh, that seems to be the problem right now. A lot of the projects, and there aren't a whole lot of them, as you mentioned, uh, in any community of these days are, are one-offs. There, there's, there is no massive move towards building these houses, which is what the governments wanted to and kind of what they promised us they were going to do. Uh, but, you know, the, the, they've got to look at and, and say, okay, how do you get these guys to say we're going to build more than just one tower? Because that's not going to get the job done. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm really glad you brought that up about the uh, what they call the rollover provision. So basically how it worked is a, a building owner uh, would get this favorable tax treatment. But when they sold the building, if they wanted to keep the proceeds from that, they had to reinvest the same amount of money or more money into a new project. So basically what, what you saw happen was the uh, builders and developers would build a project, uh, sell it to a property management company after a few years, use the proceeds and get more shovels in the ground and, and build more units. So that's an incredibly important thing to do. And as Ken also points out, uh, Ken and I point out that you can also tweak these tools to give added advantage to uh, added tax deductions for uh, building affordable units. You could build uh, ones that are climate friendly, you know, net zero units, you get a, an extra tax benefit or one that ones that are uh, accessible to people with disabilities. The CMHC already has some programs in place to give added advantage to those program uh, to those features. We could do the same thing here. So, you know, if our concern is, is just like, oh, well, people are just going to build more, but they're not going to be necessarily great units. Well, we can tweak that to make sure that we have affordability, uh, accessibility for people with disabilities and so on. If that should happen, let me just crystal ball here for a second. Uh, let's suppose somebody, you know, says reads this paper and says, you know what, these guys are onto something. Uh, and as you say, it's it's you're not asking the government to reinvent the wheel here. I mean, they've already done this and they've already used similar programs for for other uh, endeavors. You know, as you say, environmental issues. So so, you know, you're, you're not making them work up a sweat here. You're just saying, okay, transfer the, the the concept of that problem into the housing. Which area do they address first? Is it is it new units? Is it is it home buying or is it rental units that that really really needs to be addressed so, so we can get this whole process moving again? Yeah, so so this uh, this particular tax provision is uh, only for uh, only for rental units, but you could do something okay. similar on the uh, on the apartment, uh, the the sort of condo side as well. So uh, I I think the the focus should be on the rental side because we're seeing rents go up twenty percent year over year, and this is something the federal government could do. Obviously, we need other instruments as well. So we need the you know if this were put into place tomorrow. We would need to make sure that we have the zoning and approvals at the municipal level so those builders could actually build those units. Uh, at the provincial level, we need to be doing more on the skilled trades to make sure that we have the uh, uh, plumbers and electricians and roofers and so on to actually build these things. So it is a system. Uh, you know, we think that this would uh, certainly help uh, accelerate that. But, you know, the, the provincial and municipal governments absolutely have to play a role as well. 
Well, exactly. And and I'm, I know some people are not very comfortable with the role the provincial government's playing here in Ontario, of course, because they, they seem to be stepping over top of the municipalities and saying, we'll set the regulations, we'll talk about planning, we'll talk about who can and who cannot, uh, you know, raise concerns about some of these projects. And I understand why they're doing it, but I think there's, there's got to be a cooperative process here, doesn't it, that, that the cities and communities don't feel as if, well, we, we're irrelevant now. I mean, they're just going to step on top of us and, and get their approvals. Uh, there's got to be uh, some communication going on there. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, I couldn't agree more that this needs to be a collaborative pro uh, process. And, you know, if I could be made housing czar, one of the first things I would want to do <laughs> is just basically lock the the policymakers at all three levels uh, of government into a room and say, OK, we got a week. Let's just hash this out. Let's negotiate. Let's figure out what everyone's roles and responsibilities are. And let's look at what uh, a successful housing system would look like. And we could bring in the higher education sector, uh, the labor, uh, the, the builders, developers, uh, the trades unions and, and so on. So absolutely. I think this is only going to work if it's uh, if it's collaborative and a, a negotiation. So I can completely understand why the municipalities push back a little bit when uh, when the provincial government says, you know, hey, do this, do that on, on approvals. You know, municipal governments make a good point that, you know, the, the provincial approvals process, whether it be on the environment side or the transportation side, there's some significant issues there as well. So I think we need to need to address all of these at the same time. Housing czar. I think you're under something there. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I may and, have just given way, myself a new job, but honestly, I yeah. think we, we need something like that. We need some agency or, or some group. Maybe it's a CMHC to just bring everybody together and go, okay, how do we fix this? Well, it's yeah, and, and governments have done that in, in t tense situations, and I think we're in one right now. Uh, Say so you're the point person on this, okay? You you go at this and coordinate this, uh, in you know, in cooperation, as you say, with the, you know the housing and department and, and municipal government. So, uh, some great ideas in the paper here, and uh, it was I was published in the Globe and Mail. I think it's still up on their webpage if people want to go and have a look at it. Always a pleasure, Mike. Thank you so much for this today. Really appreciate the conversation. Well, thank you for having me. Take care. That's uh, Professor Mike Moffat from uh, Western University. And he's studied this thing inside and out for a number of years. We've had some some great conversations on that. And we're just hoping that, that, that some of the folks at Queen's Park that are facing these problems right now can, can look at this and be a little more open-minded about possible solutions. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's intriguing. It's It's mystifying. Uh, but it's a crime and a big crime too. Uh, we're talking about the the heist of, of gold, a lot of gold from Pearson Airport a, a couple of weeks ago now. Um, and security experts are scratching their heads saying, how could this have happened? Uh, Phil Boyle, who is one of those experts, says that that probably would have required experience and a tip-off about the opportunity to take this high-valued cargo. It was not an opportunistic smash and grab. They, they knew what they were after and where to get it, and that involves having some sort of insider knowledge about, you know, where the, where the, the merchandise was going to be and when. Uh, it's, it's intriguing. And it's, 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 it's one of these things that's almost like life imitating art. Cause this sounds like a, a movie script really uh, that we've seen before. Jordan to talk about this is a, a great reporter who's done some great investigative work and uh, on this subject as well. He is Adrian Humphreys, who is author and journalist, of course, with the National Post. Uh, Adrian, good to talk to you again. It's been a while. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me, Bill. Let's, let's talk a little bit about this. I, like I said, I, I, you know, when I saw the story and I saw your piece uh, that, that you wrote in the uh, in the Post the other day, 
I'm, I'm thinking of Goodfellas. I'm thinking of, uh, you know, uh, Henry Hill and all the other stories. That was an idle wide important in, uh, but there have been other situations like this. Uh, but as, as you talk to a number of security experts, I mean, this stuff doesn't just happen like, Oh, what's that in the box? Let's take it. Uh, you got to figure that, that there was some planning and somebody with some expert knowledge here that was at least part of this anyway. I would say uh, a ton of advanced knowledge, a ton of advanced notice, and a lot of people. Um, there needed to be people on the inside. <clears throat> Pardon me. They needed to know what was coming, when it was coming, where it was coming. They needed to know where it was going, uh, and and then they needed people uh, with uh, with the with the parts uh, to pull it off. Uh, that takes resources, and then th there's the back end, of course, and that's what to do with it. Um, you know, you need people with access to is it smelting equipment if they want to melt it down, or or resellers or shippers if they want to get it out of the country right away. It's a ton of people, uh, a ton of knowledge, and, and a ton of balls to to do this job. So let's talk about that. And again, I, I don't want to draw the analogy too closely. You know, like you know, it's the George Clooney Ocean's Eleven movies and stuff. But the point of that is, as you say, you just don't think, hey, let's Tuesday, let's go try to rob the the airport and see what we can find. Uh, they knew what they were looking for clearly, and there's an awful lot of planning that goes into something like this. Uh, but who does this sort of thing? I mean, oh, there have been incidents, and you pointed this out in the piece, uh, similar to this in the past, but maybe not as a large a scale as this. Uh, but it, as you say, it, it, it takes a lot of, of, of planning for this, but also you've got to wonder who's got the wherewithal to be able to finance something like this and to plan something like this. I mean, it will be organized crime. I mean, now that, you know, that, that's a pretty broad spectrum these days. We, you know, you mentioned these, uh, the heist movies, uh, of these skilled, uh, crooks and, and also the, you know, mafia involvement in the Lufthansa airport, uh, heist that was, uh, yeah. that was, uh, documented, well, not documented, re recreated in Goodfellas. Um, but so, but whether it's that or whether it's, uh, uh more likely to be, um, and sort of a, a gathering together of specialties, someone would have, you know, had their connection at the airport. They call them doors, people that can help get stuff in and out. Now, usually that relates to drugs. Uh, it's the, usually the commodity that they want to sneak out of a, an airplane and out of an airport. Um, but uh, but these doors, you know, anything that can fit through a door can come. Can come. And that includes a container full of $20 million worth of gold and other va valuables. Um, so I think it's people with specialties, people people that have the the street smarts and the wherewithal to actually pull it off, the people to organize it, the people to finance it, and the people to get rid of it, uh, buy it or 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 sell it. I mean, twenty million dollars is a significant sum, I'm, and I'm not trying to be flippant here. But how often does this sort of thing go on at, at an airport like Pearson? I don't mean you know this much gold, but you mentioned narcotics as as, as something that maybe is happening a lot more. Uh, do these things always get reported? Uh, because uh, there's a certain uh, risk, a certain embarrassment here, certainly with the security experts at the airport to say, "Yeah, they they got us here." Uh, yeah, but have, are there they, smaller incidents that happen on a more regular basis? Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and no, it doesn't always get reported because it doesn't usually get caught. I mean, you know, there's rough estimates, 10, 20 percent may get caught. Um, and, and that means the rest is getting through. Uh, so, you know, we've seen, for instance, um, when I was working on my book on the Rizzuto family, the six, the you know, Rizzuto mafia, uh, the called the six family, they were using the airports uh, extensively uh, to smuggle their drugs in into the um, you know the food carts and the and, and the various shipping containers. They had corrupted uh, airport and airline employees in various locations to to get that done. 
Um, and that was very successful for them for many years. You'd like to think that um, law enforcement has learned a lot over the years and and uh, making it at least harder for these guys, if not stopping it altogether. But uh, the, the airports are very porous. They're huge, huge enterprises. They cover a lot of land. They cover a lot of moving parts. They have, uh, the uh, I forget the statistics, but it's a huge amount of cargo comes in. Same thing with our ports. I mean, uh, the ports are just as porous. Uh, with with goods coming in and out. So, you know, you either put a stranglehold on the choke points of these airports and ports uh, and, and and play havoc with the supply chain, or you you use intense intelligence to 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 know what to look for ahead of time at spot checks and other and other means that they try and do to 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 reduce it, if not eliminate it. Well, and and there are some, I guess, common points here that you pointed out in the article. Um, for instance, you know, the, the, the Toronto from Zurich flight, uh, you know, every day at four o'clock, it lines up Pearson. Um, and, and somebody with insider information would know exactly where it would go, you know, how it would be transported and processed, or I guess not processed as the case might be in situations like this. So once you know, I guess, the system and you know exactly what they're going to be doing and probably where they're going to be doing it, uh, I, I, it makes it a lot easier, I guess, for the bad guys to, to be able to plan how to, to you know, get into that system or how to, to corrupt that system. Yeah, absolutely, Bill. And, and and the biggest mystery really for me is sort of how the specifics of this would have happened. I mean, that's one thing to know there's gold coming in or, or you know, there's a valuable shipment coming in. Uh, but it's another to, to actually pull it off. And this is where the real mystery begins to me. I mean, where did it go? How did it get out? I mean, I Brinks confirmed to me that their security guards uh, went out on the tarmac, met the aircraft as it uh, ta- after it taxied to the apron, unloaded the gold uh, into their load, or sort of collected the gold and loaded it into their security, uh, and then drove it to the cargo handling facility because it's a, a foreign asset, a foreign flight. It needed to pass through Canada Customs, and this is sort of where it goes missing. Um, my understanding is that the Brinks guards aren't allowed to keep hands on throughout the next part of the chain. They sort of collect it on the other side, a little bit like people collecting their baggage. Uh, it's unloaded. Oh, yeah. they, they, they give it to the airline. Uh, they take it to their destination, unload it, and then you pick it up at the baggage carousel and then leave. With cargo, it's somewhat similar. Uh, it has to go through a cargo handling facility through you know, where there's brokers in Canada Customs, and in this case, it was an Air Canada cargo facility, I'm told. And it it either didn't come out the other end, or it came out the other end and was collected by those, someone else, the, in the wrong hands. And we that, that, that choke point is what we don't know. For instance, we don't actually know it left the airport. My latest theory is, what if it just got stuck or stayed around for a little bit and then redirected onto another flight out? And... Uh, and, and it never made it through customs, and it never made it out of the cargo facility onto the other side. That's a distinct possibility. Another security guy I was talking to said, "Well, you know, it might have taken. What, what if what if fake sprint guards went and collected it on the other side uh, using a fake truck and driving off with it? These are the types of sort of high-end, sophisticated operations that the experts are, are are really thinking must have been involved in this." But in the most elementary t- fashion, uh, I mean, there are places that you and I can go to in an airport and places where we're not allowed. Uh, and, and I would think that this is one of those areas where, the, you know, you can't just wander in. Well, look, I'm in the cargo area now. Uh, you know, I mean, even if you're a passenger, as you mentioned in the piece, I mean, if you don't have a ticket, you're not getting past a certain point. 
and and uh, I, I got to figure that those security protocols and, and guardrails are in place, especially with this. I mean, this was gold, but I mean, the, I'm sure there's a, a lot of other precious materials that move through in this fashion, too. Yeah, the, the problem, perhaps from the cargo facilities perspective, is when someone's shipping gold, you don't put a big slap, uh, slap a big sticker on it. This is valuable gold, 20 million here, guys. Uh, so, you know, the, the average worker, the run-of-the-mill workers that are handling tons, um, I mean literally tons of cargo um, pouring in, everything from from motorbikes, Christmas presents, uh, fruit, imported goods for stores, uh, you know, anything that sort of travels in the cargo hold. Pets and animals go through there when people are, are sending their pet animals abroad. Mm-hmm. Um they don't necessarily know which ones are the 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 high value ones and which ones aren't. If you you know, that's where it takes that sort of the insider to know. So uh, and that's where you get to that point where um, you, you need a corruption or infiltration or subterfuge. Um, that's why you need uh, potentially like a fake guard or or a corrupt custom worker or a corrupt cargo handler or corrupt airline staff to redirect it onto another flight. That's why we believe corruption, subterfuge, because when you think of a heist uh, from a movie, you usually think of, well, there's two types, you know, the balalaclava, gun-toting, strong-arm robbery, strong-arm heist. There's no evidence of that whatsoever. There was no complaints of entry. There was no warning to the airports. The people I've talked to said there there was no indication that personnel were a threat. So that means it was done through trickery uh, or, or corruption. It, it, it left with most people thinking it was leaving properly with authority. And it wasn't, police say. You, you have talked to some uh, law enforcement officials on this. And, and, and like you say, they're not going to be totally forthcoming with information because of embarrassment. Who does what? Who's responsible for what? Et cetera, et cetera. But I'm sure they will be with the authorities. But... During an investigation like this, though, Adrian, especially at this stage, it's it's not that long ago this occurred. Do the do the cops realize that they got to play the long game here? Because as you say, a lot of these crimes do get solved. Uh, you know, the great train robbery in Britain way back in the nineteen sixties. It, it took almost decades to to find all the perpetrators for that, as it has with some of these other things too. It, it, like we can't expect that we're going to get breaking news in the next uh, couple of days and say we got them all, we got the gold back. Uh, you know, if they planned the execution of the of the crime, they also planned the getaway, didn't they? They would have done that, and they would have planned it well. Um, one thing that often happens with some of these is that the bigger fish uh, start to tie up loose ends, and sometimes tying up a loose ends means uh, has catastrophic results for some of those ends. Uh, it, it's not just in movies where some of the bit players uh, think they're looking for a quick, easy score, and they end up being killed because they they're seen as weak links. Um, police might well have made some arrests, low-hanging fruit on this, and they wouldn't tell us right away because they're hoping to move up the food chain. Uh, the way I see it is there's likely to eventually be some arrests in relation to this. Uh, the bigger question is, will there be recovery? Will the gold ever be found? Um, and, and what are the other valuable assets? That's, that's not been identified. Um, one of my colleagues, uh, um, Brian Lillies, has information saying that it was banknotes, that it was money. 
Uh, but that's not been confirmed by uh, by anyone. Um, so, you know, what else was in there? But is there going to be recovery? Uh, you know, it seems so hard to believe. You know, cars are stolen off the street in Mississauga and they're on a shipping container in Montreal within several you know, hours. And, you know, and then up the St. Lawrence Seaway overseas to Africa. You know, this is the sort of process these criminals have in place. If you can do it for a stolen Lincoln Navigator, you can do it for a $20 million case of gold and valuables. I don't think we're necessarily going to see it again. You mentioned the weak link, though. I mean, where do where do the police start? Uh, you know, along that whole process, uh, you know, does it start when the plane touches down at, at Pearson? Uh, you know, does it start when they come off the tarmac? Uh, where's the weak link? And you know, you got to figure out. You know, at what point could they have, uh, you know, interceded in here? And I guess that that's going to take an awful lot of grunt work. Well, it's also going to take uh, an awful lot of uh, video review. So you know, this is in an area. This you know the potential weakness in their plot. Their plot, um, as you say, depending on where, at what point it was taken or diverted. But there's there's video cameras everywhere, both on the the secure side of the airport and on the public side of the airport. Both are are highly monitored. Um, obviously, there's more security on the secure zone. And this facility, by the way, for for, for your listeners, is sort of on the perimeter of the secure zone. It was on airport property, but it's leased corporate space. It's run and managed and secured by Air Canada, Mm -hmm. but it's at that sort of edge of the red zone of the secure zone of the airport where where the where people can't go and people can go. So people are arriving at one door to pick up stuff, but they can't proceed out the back door into the secure zone. So that's that another region. And there's there's a lot of cameras there. There's going to be this crime likely was caught on video. The question is, how obvious is it and how easy it is to identify the people involved? And can they find those people now? Uh, I got to ask you, you, you talked about your book with the Risottos, uh, the, the, uh, others about the weasel and, and a Hamilton organized crime. Is there a book in this? <laughs> um, well, we are a long way from knowing really what happened. Uh, yeah. So, you know, if it's if it's an amazing caper with a with a great cat and mouse game and uh, and some unexpected arrests or escapes, or if one of the gold heist people wants to talk to me about it, hey, anything. <laughs> well, and you've had both, haven't you, over the years? I mean, I mentioned I the weasel. I mean, I, I don't know. He, of course, was a guy that worked in New York and in Toronto and organized crime. He was the driver. Uh, you know, sometimes I guess when you do the kind of work that you do, you you, you come across these uh, sources of information that you maybe didn't expect, and it opens a lot of doors for you. You don't know what's going to happen with this one, though, do you? I don't. I'd love to know. I will continue following it. Uh, I've also done a a bit of a video explaining some of it on my YouTube channel called The Mob Reporter, and that's when I can show people some of what we're talking about, the places and the, and the, and the mechanics involved. So uh, they well, can I'll be that checking out that out after the show today. Uh, the Mob Reporter, you can check that out on, on YouTube. Adrian, great work on this as always. Thanks so much for the time today. And we'll be watching for your further reporting on this as uh, things develop. Hey, thanks for your interest, Bill. I appreciate it. Take care. Adrian Humphreys, uh, award-winning author and journalist for the National Post. And go to the YouTube channel there and uh, and find out exactly what he's been up to and, and some of the information that he's learned. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.